tonight, we're starting back into the book of Matthew for some extended time. If you guys remember, we've already done this a couple of times. We started volume one, where we spent about 13 weeks going from Matthew chapter three to eight. We then took some breaks, did some of our other series. Volume two came along, parts 14 to 23. So we got up to our 23rd week getting to chapter 12. And now we're going to start volume three. You guys know in the last few months we've been doing series on biblical justice, spiritual disciplines. We just finished a long series about questions about prayer. And it's time that we spend some time again in God's word. Just directly going through it line by line. What we're building here is kind of an audio commentary Exodus style. We're getting a chance to comment on it and push back on some of this. Along the way, what I'm hoping we do is we rediscover a little bit about Jesus. Let's go back to the source of trying to understand Jesus directly from the words, not from the sermons we've heard, not from the bumper stickers that we read or put on our cars, not from the sayings or the kind of crazy theologies we come up with, but actually from the text itself. What was Jesus doing, at least the way that the writer of Matthew put it? So we're back starting in chapter 13. If you have a Bible, open up to chapter 13. Chapter 13 is a chapter where Matthew arranges the text and inserts several parables right next to each other. This is what's called the third discourse of Jesus. He brings together a number of parables and puts them in chapter 13. So for the next couple of weeks, as we go through this, we're gonna actually be reading the parables of Jesus. This is a good time to kind of plug you in and let you know that we've already done a series on parables. About two years ago, we went through a number of series. I think we spent about eight weeks analyzing the parables as a device. So tonight, we're going to kind of go over that just a little bit because it plugs right into this part here. And you guys know that most of the things that we do have a way of coming back up again because we're studying and learning a three-dimensional view of how to understand our faith. So if you want deeper information about not just the parables in Matthew, but several others, you might want to check out that series on our website or podcast it. Let's start with the subject of parables. Here's the question we asked, and we asked this question back in our parable series. If Jesus is beginning to teach, and in this chapter you're going to see he's starting to teach the crowds, the question we have to start with is, why teach in parables? Why would Jesus, who has a very important message, teach in parables? Asked another way, you can ask it from a skeptic's perspective. It might come out something like this. If this message is so important that my eternal life depends on it, why would you obscure it? Why would you hide it from me? Why, if Jesus has come to earth to announce this kingdom, would he then say, now I'm going to teach in parables? And as you see from the text we're going to have up here, he hints and can even come out pretty explicitly and say, some people are not going to get it. So it's not lost on him that this is going to happen. In fact, his first parable is about people who don't get it. So why would he do that? Here's me showing up to hear the message. I'm curious enough to be there. Like I was there, I was ready to hear, I wanted to get it. And you kind of played this game with me. Not one that's easily understood, so the whole device is intended to kind of obscure. Jeremy. It's not the case that, in my opinion, it's not the case that there's a certain time to understand it. In fact, 
at different points in your life, you may relate more to different parts of a parable and less to other parts. You can have understanding on a theoretical level of what it means, but um, in terms of its application to your life, I mean, if these, if you, it's it's easy to do that than giving concrete examples, which which is a little bit harder to relate to. But this, you can understand the parable, but you understand it differently depending on where you're where you're. Okay, I think a parable, by the way, good definition might be, or not not a literal definition, but something to understand is it's kind of like the truth illustrated. It's an illustration of truth. Um, in fact, even the root of the Semitic word metho, when you use it in certain languages, it all has a secondary meaning as an example of, or an allegory of. So there's, there's this part where we can understand that parables do illustrate truth, but you're right, when you come back to them, you see that they have multiple layers sometimes, and you understand them a little bit differently depending on the perspective. Theologians have debated for years, does a parable have only one meaning? Does it have many meanings? Does every single device in the parable, is it there for a reason? And most, after debating it for a long, long time, come to the conclusion that there's probably multiple layers in a parable. You can understand different things, but we shouldn't get overly concerned with every detail because it is a story and is an example. Let's look at what Jesus says. I'm going to actually jump into the middle of chapter 13, starting in verse 10. Because he begins in verse 1 by explaining the parable of the sower. He gives the parable of the sower. And later, in verse 10, the disciples are asking him, why do you speak in parables? This is apparently a little bit of a new device that he's about to adopt, at least in the way that Matthew arranges the text. Let's start in verse 10 and read from there. I'm reading from the NIV, since that's the one that most of you seem to have. The disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. This is why I speak to them in parables. And he cites this quotation. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become callous. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Boy, his explanation of why he speaks in parables is almost as much of a riddle as the parable itself. So let's break that down a little bit. Why do you speak to the people in parables? The disciples wanted to know. And he says to them, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Well, first, let's get the you. Who's the you? He's talking to the disciples, but not to them. Who's the them? Well, everybody else who's not the disciples. Does that strike you as strange? He's already making a dichotomy between the disciples. Like, I'm going to give you the secrets, but not to everybody else. Wait a minute. Isn't our job to go out to the ends of the earth and tell everybody the message? Why are you keeping it to yourself? Then he goes on to say, the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. He's not just talking about future heaven. Matthew uses the kingdom of heaven the way that other gospel writers use the kingdom of God, the present kingdom and the kingdom to come. 
kind of in one concept, but he calls it the kingdom of heaven. So he's saying, I'm going to give the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. They've been given to you. This kind of notion of it being given, that you get to receive it, like somebody's chosen that they get it. Some people have said that's kind of an allusion to a predestination concept in here. The word seems pretty strong that it was given to them. Other people disagree and say, no, that's just the wording, okay? We're not going to get into that debate for sure. Whoever has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. Let's dive into that riddle. What is he talking about? What do you have and not have? They're connected. That's exactly right. He's saying that if you've been given this knowledge of the secret of the kingdom of heaven, you'll have even more in abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. Doesn't that trouble us again? I mean, take those words. If you don't know about the kingdom of heaven, then it's, even what you have, what little interest in it you have, will be taken from you. This doesn't sound like the Jesus that I hear about all the time. Seems a little bit harsh. Jeremy. Well, in this case, I think clearly he, he's talking to the disciples. But at the same time, I don't know that we can say he's only talking to the disciples. I think that we can, by extension, say he's talking to more than just... I mean, it's, it's going to at least apply to more than just the disciples, the, this kind of knowledge. You know, it's not that in my it's not that he's purposely hiding these things from people. It's a it's the, the problem is with the, the perceiver. And the deeper problem has to do with the heart. Define disciples. I think that's where we might are you using disciples with a big D or a little D? Well, I mean there's nothing to say that he's only talking to the twelve and we know that he had other disciples, so I would say the little D. I, I would include Okay. And 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 let me address the point of who he's speaking to. He is probably speaking to the disciples of the little d, meaning many people who are disciples, not the twelve. He's speaking to an extended group, but he is not speaking to the crowd. First, because he's making the distinction, you and them. And secondly, because when we jump back to verse 1, you're going to see that at first he was in the house, he comes out, speaks to the crowd from the boat, and then retreats back to speak to the disciples separately. So he is actually speaking to the disciples, but again, that's why I want to know which ones, because we might erroneously think he's just speaking to the twelve. He's actually speaking to people who would follow him. It's a much larger group. There's two explanations, by the way, that are offered by theologians in addition to the things that are in the text itself, that are evident in other places in Scripture. One reason Jesus used parables was because the hearers that were listening were not always friendly. So he was slowly unfolding what he was saying. And it isn't until the end of his ministry that he begins to declare it with such clarity that they end up killing him for it. So he is slowly letting that out. That's one reason. The second one is that people who are listening, he wants to differentiate between people who've just come to see the latest curiosity in Galilee versus people who are 
really understanding and want to go deeper. Some people have said that like his disciples who pull him aside and say, explain this to us. And we see it twice in chapter 13 that he explains it to them that it's very likely he actually explained most of his parables to them. That his group that followed him and wanted to be disciples were getting the explanation. He was just trying to differentiate between people who were just wanting to see the latest wonder, the latest miracle, the latest teaching from somebody who was the latest thing. I think both of those probably have some merit, but they still trouble us. Because there are people who could have maybe changed if they heard it directly. And Jesus is using this device. It's a known device. Jesus didn't invent the use of parables. It was around quite a bit of time. And he was using something that they might be familiar with. But in our kind of society, we want to tell them, tell it to them straight, right? So they understand it. Jesus adds this additional part right here, starting in verse 16. Blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. He's pronouncing a blessing upon those who get it. For I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous men longed to see what you see, but did not see it. And to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. There has been this long expectation. He's slowly again revealing to his disciples that the messianic hope is fulfilled in him. They might not all get it, but he is pronouncing like, how great is the time that you live in that you get to see these things taking place in front of you? Ryan. So it's still a blessing to be able to see and hear, but you need to understand it. So where's the differentiate between like, okay, it's a blessing to see and, and be a part of it, but then at the same time, like where's the connection of they do understand it and not just hear and see it and don't understand it? It's a good question. He's already told them that you understand it and you get it. That's why when he says, blessed are your eyes because they do see, right? He is actually making that connection in the previous verse to them. Okay. All right? But I, I think that secondarily, Jesus would say, blessed is anyone who even stands in earshot of this and gets to see what has been the hope of Israel for so long. I mean, I'm here, but I don't think that at this early stage, everyone is really truly understanding the beauty of Jesus' words there. I mean, this is the same kind of concept, for example, as when Jesus is brought to the temple early on as a baby. And you have like Simeon and Anna standing there for all these years waiting just to see the hope of Israel, right? So this is kind of harkens to that same kind of beautiful sentiment that Jesus has where he's identifying himself by pronouncing a blessing on those who see and kind of giving them the, you are living at a momentous time. Yeah? I think like that applies still today, though, because if... I didn't know God the way I already know him, or maybe if I was an adult and still hadn't come to Christ, I probably wouldn't want to believe her. Like, I'd be in the same boat as some of these other people that I've encountered. Or I look at my father that came to know Christ so, like later on in life, and I just don't even understand how he chose it. And like I feel really lucky because I can see that point of view. And I'm like, but why do I see it? And like I still experience God, and like I have God. And other people can see the same things and not choose it. So I think it still applies today because that is a blessing. It does. We live in the hope of what happened forward. Not just the ministry of Jesus, the knowledge of his life on earth, death, resurrection, but even the start of the church and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Like We have that going forward. I don't know how many of us stop and appreciate that. Or even just for a moment appreciate, if you look at this concept like to those whom it's been given, whether you believe in predestination or not, that's a pretty strong statement. 
So however we got onto Planet Christian and somehow figured this thing out, sometimes I just stop and think, I, you know, it's, it's just amazing. Because I could have been born in a different family where maybe I still would have found my way here, but all the obstacles that would have been in the way, some of us may have gone through those obstacles to just be here tonight. So I think just in that vein, there's something that's beautiful in the fact that you go, yeah, I know this. I mean, if we don't believe that that is of the greatest value, then I don't know what we're doing here. So what do we make of the parables? He's going to use this device for the rest of Matthew when he does his teaching. I think except in chapter 27, he will use parables when he's teaching. The recorded teachings we have from this point will follow the format. So we have to kind of get comfortable with it. There's also, of course, parables in Luke and other places, but we're going to follow these parables. What can we get out of them? Well, there's always a main point that we've all grown accustomed to. Most of the parables have been preached in our churches, and we kind of get the main point. But I'd like to offer you a couple things that you can get out of them. Sometimes, like I said, there's some secondary meaning in them that's really nice to look at. And, like Jeremy pointed out, sometimes at different points in your life or at different points in your studying of the Word, you'll reflect on a parable slightly differently. You'll see it from a slightly different angle. You can read the Bible with many lenses. You know, you might be looking at it one way to see, I want to see all the verses about discipleship. Sometimes you're reading and go, I want to see all the verses on financial accountability or all the times that, that, that Jesus told us to do things. Like you're reading it in different ways and the parables kind of lay down a little bit differently sometimes depending on which lens you're using to read it. That's why they're so beautiful. Let's look at one right now, going to the parable of the sower. So go back to verse 1. And here's what starts off chapter 13. And it sets the scene for how we know that Jesus is speaking to a larger number of people, starting in verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into the boat and sat in it, while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell among the path, and the birds came up and ate it. Some fell on the rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. He who has ears, let him hear. I like that last part, he who has ears, let him hear. That's the equivalent of, thank you very much. So there's all these people gathered, so many of them that he's got to sit on a boat. If you've been to the edge of the Sea of Galilee, right by probably where he was speaking, the water is very shallow. You can have a boat just floating out a little bit off his shore, just probably a few feet off, and you'd have a boat there. So they could probably hear him, I don't know, probably didn't have megaphones, whatever he was doing from the boat. But he tells them this parable. So put yourself in the position of the crowd now. The crowd hears this. They've come to hear the latest wonder. And this is Jesus. He tells them a story about a farmer. So Dustin would have been psyched. He's like, that's my dream job. Farmer. And then after he tells them the parable, he says, thank you very much. <laughs> he who has ears, let him hear. And then he retreats. Apparently, now there might have been more going on that Matthew didn't record, but the next thing we have is the disciples with him 
somewhere else going, why are you speaking to the people in parables? So apparently that was pretty much the end of the story. So let's interpret it. Most of us know this, what this one's about. What's going on here? We know what some of these things represent. So the farmer normally represents God or somebody who's spreading the word. And the seed is the word of God. And the different soils represent different conditions of the types of people that are receiving the seed. All right? If you skip down to verse 18, he actually explains this parable. We only have, I think, two that are explained. This is one of them. Listen to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The one who received the seed that fell on rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word. But the worries of this life and deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. But the one who received the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it. He produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. That's the explanation of this parable. Most of us have heard it. Anything controversial about it to you? He's just describing the types of recipients. So you could say, what's the meaning of the parable? Well, he just explained the different soils and different types of people who receive it. But how we use it is very interesting. Sometimes in churches, the way we use this parable is we're trying to get people to till their own soil. Like we're saying to the congregation, which soil are you? Is that what Jesus was saying? I don't think that's what Jesus was saying. Now, it's possible that that meaning is there, and I actually believe it's partly there. But if you're one of those people who's, that's the condition or that's where you are when the seed is, when the word is received by you, I don't know that it was meant to be preached like, hey, are you like the road? You know, I don't know if that's what it was meant to be. Jesus begins with this parable and then explains some people are not ready to receive the word. He goes into the whole parable of some people, even what they have will be taken from them. Their understanding will be taken. They won't, it won't make it, and that seems to follow kind of this idea of it maybe landing on the road or maybe landing in the rocky places. So the way we use parables, we have to do it with care. We can't just look at it and say, oh, this would be great. I could slam this home on a Sunday morning and make everybody feel uncomfortable, and I've done my job. Monique. If we're telling people about Christ, but we're not helping them develop roots in the church, like that's kind of on us as well. It's kind of like abandoning your seed. <laughs> well, Jesus doesn't identify the sower in his explanation. When you ask most people who is the sower, a lot of people will say Jesus. I don't think that's incorrect. But he didn't even find it important enough to mention. He didn't say like, I am the sower. I am the farmer. He doesn't say that. He identifies the sower as the one who's throwing the seed, the seed being the word of God. So that means that it leaves it very open for us to be sowers as well. Ryan. I think what's kind of cool about this parable is like when, you know, Jesus talks about parables, I mean, 
he's talking to obviously what we were talking about with the disciples before. Um, but I also think like with this one in particular, it's like you can relate ourselves to the soil and the farmer you know, who's sowing the seed or the sower. Because, you know, there's people that basically when the seed's sown, you know, we you can relate it to our lives with, okay, cool, you know, I can either reject that or I can take that or I can take that for a little while and then reject it. Or, you know, also at the same time, you can be the sower, sowing the seed. So I think it's kind of got this universal kind of meaning to it, you know, that you can relate to kind of both ends of it, which is kind of cool. That's the multiple layers that I see in the parable that when you look at it, like there are times when you'll be sitting there thinking, all right, Jesus was trying to say that the seed will land in certain soils that aren't ready to receive it. But secondarily, there'll be times when you're sitting in that congregation thinking, how is the condition of my heart? Like you can think of it that way. There will also be times when you put yourself in the position of the sower, like you said. For example, this is why I love the parables, because they do provide these beautiful examples. Just this last week, another connecting point back to our website is Jeremy was talking about responsibility versus irresponsibility in giving. And he had a posting on there. And it reminded me, as I was studying this parable, of this parable. Because if you look at this parable the sower seems pretty irresponsible in the way that he sows the seed. I mean, if you're a farmer, would you throw seed on the road? Would you throw it into rocky places or among thorns? I mean, most people, even in the first century, understood that probably it landing in the fourth type of soil, the good soil, is where you wanted it to be. But there's that question that you have to almost ask, like, so what's the purpose of throwing it in all these different places? That's where it's just a parable. Jesus is not going so far as to prescribe something. It's an example. And to make his example meaningful, he has to have some of it fall in different places. But I do believe that there is an example modeled for us where the sower is throwing the seed everywhere, even knowing that it might not take root. In fact, Jesus, knowing that it won't take root, and even people in the first century know, you throw seed on the road, not going to take root. Some people have said, well, that's because it shows Jesus is very generous in the way that he wants that there none to be with excuse of any kind. So I'm going to give the word out everywhere. I think that's probably a good way to look at this. It's not the main point of the parable. It's one of those secondary nuances that you can pull out of it and say, hey, that's really beautiful. I like seeing that. You can't just build an entire doctrine out of it. Because he does have a main point about where it's going to land. Any comments? Philip? Jesus' response to like why he speaks in parables, that they seem to have some comparison with like the disciples with like all the followers, like that they will get it. Or that whatever that is. Like that they'll see and hear. He even says, like, yeah, you, you will see and hear, but they're asking him what it means. Like so they obviously don't get it. There's I, I feel like there's a problem there, but I don't really understand. That's that's why I think the, the thing should trouble us a little bit. Because you're right, his answer implies that this will be given to you. But they don't get it. And they don't get it again a little bit later. And it, to say that the disciples don't get it is a repeated theme in Scripture, right? <laughs> I mean, they're constantly not getting it. You know, even at the end, they're not understanding. Like, they always seem like, what? Like, they're all surprised. I think the way to understand that is his reference to Isaiah is saying that what's going to be given to you is understanding. And more will be given to you because you've just had this, the ability to inquire deeply enough. 
is the best resolution I can come up with. Because this hearing implies an understanding, it's that you hear and understand, not just somebody who hears it in earshot, but that you're starting to get it. But you're right, they don't get it. So between those two is, you've been given the ability to move along that road to get it, and more will be given to you as a result. That's why a lot of people call this a predestinarian verse. Because if you're not given that, you can't even progress on the road, it seems to imply. And some people think that the word given is very strong. And he kind of repeats that same concept over and over. We go back to those verses that it's something that you don't just figure out because you're so smart. But you're allowed in so that you could begin this journey of understanding it even more. And of course, the disciples will eventually get there. Okay. Jeremy? There's something, there's something else going on here which we haven't quite got to yet, and that's, and I don't know how to say it, like, this is pre-cross, you know, because now the church is the one who's doing that, and, and they're supposed to have a different attitude. I mean, it'd be weird to see the church walking around saying, oh, I'm giving it to you and not to you. Like, like the church wouldn't do that. So, I mean, so there's like, there's different things going on. Okay, but let me pause there, because you're right, this is pre-cross. Second of all, the Great Commission isn't announced until after the resurrection, okay? With the announcement of the church and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And you're right, today we wouldn't decide you do this or you do that, like you get to hear this and you don't. And all of those things are in the parable. Because the sower is throwing the seed to all the soils, even the ones that he knows will not respond that Jesus is so generous that even people he knows can never bear fruit, he will still throw the seed to, into those soils. He knows that they don't want to choose it, but he also knows that they can't. Like, otherwise, it's so pointless. I'm not disagreeing with you, but that's only one theological perspective. Because we know that without the Holy Spirit, we cannot even receive Christ. It's not entirely in our hands. Other people believe it is entirely in our hands. You're taking the position that we can change the type of people that we are to receive or not receive. It's a fair point. I think the easier position to take and the easier one is Jesus may know. That does, there's no relation on, on whether you do or do not do something that you're commanded. So if we're going to take the Great Commission seriously, right, we don't stop doing that just because Jesus may know. All right, I'm going to actually close off that point and say this, and we'll discuss it later. You're right, we're going to do it anyway, but Jesus already models that. I think that's the right approach. So I think we should follow that example. The reason it does matter, though, is not on how we act in terms of taking the word to other people. I think it actually relates more to Monique's point, which is, is this really in our control or not? And that's been debated forever. That's why we're not going to stop right there. Because is it within our control? Well, it doesn't matter to you, and it doesn't matter to our attitude, but it, some people it does bother them, and they cannot get over that hurdle because they feel like that's going to prevent them from moving forward with it. So yeah, it's, to some people it really is a stumbling block for them. That the knowledge or the ability to understand these things can be either given or taken away creates huge problems for some people. All right? So I'll just leave it there. What about those soils again? And this is the part where I do agree with Monique to close this off. The parable does have a meaning that some people will not respond to the kingdom of God. If you took the parable at what is the main point, the main point is going to be that despite giving the word out into all different places, this is Matthew's explanation, or this is the reason he arranges it this way, 
to show that there are going to be some people who will just not accept Christ or understand his message. Let's put it that way, because it is pre-cross at this point. There will be some people who will not understand the message. There will be some people who look like they're very excited at the beginning that will die out very quickly. That's the main point. But I think there is that secondary point that Monique's been kind of pushing us towards. Like, for example, the third one is the one that sounds a lot like us. You know, where the seed goes in, springs up, but the thing that kills it from being fruitful is the deceitfulness of wealth and the worries of this world. I think we can examine ourselves in that light and say, okay, as a practical thing to take out of this, is that me? It's not the main point of the parable, but it's, it's a good inquiry for us to stop and ask when you're putting on that lens of, okay, where am I? Jesus does seem to be very concerned with fruitfulness. He brings it up over and over in the different places. And here's an example of what makes us unfruitful. He gives us directly, here's a reason you would be unfruitful. Because the deceitfulness of wealth, the worries of this life, you're ever seeking after the pleasures is another way that it's worded in other translations, the pleasures of wealth. Those kinds of things take us away from the central core of what he's called us to. I think in those places we can examine a parable like this and say, yeah, that might apply to me. That might be something I need to avoid. That might rightly call me out to figure out, am I somebody who can, who's in danger of being unfruitful? Because yes, I received the word, and yes, it started to go the right direction, but these other things are going to choke it out. What good is that going to be? Jesus says, would probably say, unfruitful is no use. And we'll see that in other places. Okay? So I think they're helpful in that regard. That's the parable of the sower. Next week, in continuing in our agricultural themes, we'll look at the parable of the weeds that grow up among the wheat and continue into chapter 13 and other places. We can pick up the pace a little bit as we look at the parables there and maybe finish those out. So that's what we're going next week. Let's close up and pray. And uh, Lord, I'm thankful first and foremost that the people in this room know and can hear about who you are that we have access to your word, that we can read your words directly. Lord, that we have a knowledge of who you are, that however that happened, thank you that we know who you are and have the chance to accept you and to live a life in the kingdom that you've ordained here on earth. Lord, let us not stop marveling at the wonder of your parables, of your words, of all the different ways we could understand them. But Lord, let's take seriously also this struggle that we have with understanding some of the deeper things that are going on. We do have friends. We do have people. We will run into people in this life who are going to be tripped up by some of the things. There are people who want to know those things. Cement these things in our heart and our mind. Pray this in your name. Amen.